I don't know if any of you remember the story of Tracy Lippard. This was a fairly big story back in the, the mid-90s, 1994, I believe. Tracy Lippard was uh, a beauty queen. She was a contestant in the Miss Virginia pageant. She was uh, Miss Williamsburg. She became upset that her boyfriend missed the next year's Miss Williamsburg pageant when she was to be crowning her successor. And so she planned to go and visit a woman that she thought he'd been seeing secretly. And she loaded up her car with a pistol in her pocket, a hammer, uh, lighter fluid, and matches, and she drove 275 miles down to that home of that other woman. And when she arrived at the house and rang the doorbell, it was answered by that woman's father. She took the hammer and she hit him on the head. But it didn't kill him. It didn't even knock him out. It only stunned him. And what she didn't realize was that that man was a retired Secret Service agent. And so he got up and he pretty quickly detained her and he kept her there until the police arrived. Now, I have a suspicion that in all those beauty pageants, Tracy never won an award for Miss Congeniality. But when the police were interviewing her, she said that she was driven to seek revenge because she needed, quote, inner peace. Now, attempted murder is not one of the avenues we're going to be discussing tonight, but I think we're all seeking peace. And that's the word that we studied together this week, and it's the word we want to consider together for a few moments this evening. Uh, the Hebrew word that's translated peace is one that's probably tolerably familiar to most of us, even if we don't really know anything about Greek or Hebrew. It's shalom. That's a word that most of us have probably heard. And it means essentially that the concept is one of fastening. So what we're talking here is about stability, being in a stable relationship. When we think of peace in English, we typically think of it in the sense of an absence from conflict. It's a negative word for us. That is, it's about what it doesn't have in it. But that's not the case with Hebrew or with Greek. It has a, a positive connotation to it. When we're talking about peace, we're not just talking about the absence of conflict. Shalom is stability. It's tranquility. It's wholeness. It's soundness. And the same thing is largely true of the Greek word that's primarily translated as peace, irene. It has essentially the same connotation as shalom with one added difference, and that is Christ. He brings a new dimension. That is that we truly find peace in Jesus Christ. So this word is used in the New Testament of, of uh, harmonious relationships between different nations. It's used of peace between uh, people. It's used of peace in the church. It's used especially of peace between God and human beings. If you were in our Bible class this morning, we talked at length about a verse that portrays this beautifully. Romans chapter 5 and verse number 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in our text tonight, Brooks read it a few moments ago, 
Paul talks about the peace that passes all understanding. That's a line that we're familiar with. It's in a children's song that we sing. I've got the peace that passes understanding down in my heart. And that's something that we're all seeking. And remember, peace is about being in a right relationship. Well, here in Philippians chapter 4, Paul talks about that in a few different ways. He talks about peace with one another. He talks about peace within ourselves. And he talks about being at peace with God. So I want us to just walk through a few of these verses here in Philippians chapter 4 together and see these different dimensions of this peace that we're trying to cultivate. So first of all, Paul says that we need to be at peace with one another. Right there, we have advice that flies in the face of the way a lot of people look at the world today. There are some people who think that we just need to be in a constant state of turmoil. We need to be fighting for ourselves. We need to be uh, scratching and clawing, looking out for number one, because if we don't, who's going to? So life is a constant battle, and we have to be constantly trying to make ourselves better, to better our situations. People put themselves first. It's my way or the highway. But it's not that way in the church, right? We, we always get along, right? We don't ever disagree about anything. I mean, we're part of the family of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't ever have any sorts of disagreements, do we? Of course, that's not true. In fact, just this evening, I came out of my office, and Philip and Danny had been standing in the secretary's office, and they didn't know I was in there, and they'd been saying unspeakable things about me, and uh, I can't even repeat them. You'll have to ask them what they were saying. And in fact, this morning, as we were starting class, David Smith threatened to strangle me. I kid you not, he literally did. You can ask him about it. Now, there are times when we all disagree on a serious note. We recognize that. We don't always see eye to eye, even in the church. I read about a congregation that sent out a survey to their members, a medium-sized congregation, and they were wanting to get a handle on what people thought about different things. And they got just about 200 responses. And the one thing that they found is that there was a great degree of diversity of opinions within that congregation. So for one thing, some thought that they needed to go to the bank and borrow all the money they could to build all of the buildings that they needed right then and there, and they would grow into them in the future. On the other hand, some thought that they didn't need to borrow any money ever, that they needed to just wait until they could pay cash for whatever they needed. Some felt that they were giving too much to missions, that they ought to be looking out for their own needs in-house first. Others thought that they didn't give enough to missions, that they were focusing too much inwardly and they needed to give that money elsewhere. A couple of the most amusing responses, one person said that the preacher didn't preach enough on stewardship, he ought to be encouraging people to give more. And somebody else responded that it didn't matter what the subject was, the preacher always ended up talking about money. That's just the way it is. We don't always see eye to eye on things, and that Diversity shouldn't surprise us because people can be opinionated, even within the church. But the real question is, how do we deal with that? Do we allow that to paralyze us? 
Do we become afraid to do anything because we're worried about upsetting anyone and everyone with any decision that we make? And inevitably, somebody's going to be upset. Or we, do we move forward prayerfully, recognizing that while there might be disagreements, we can hopefully work through those things together? Because those disagreements are going to come. It reminds me of the old story. Some of you have heard this. In fact, I may have even told this before since I've been here. But about the church-wide business meeting when they were discussing ordering a chandelier. They'd been going back and forth about it for a while. And finally, one old fellow stands up and he says, well, I'm against it for three reasons. First of all, this was back before the internet. First of all, nobody knows how to spell it to order it. Second of all, I don't think we ought to be adding instruments to the assembly. And I don't expect anybody knows how to play it anyway. And third, we don't need a chandelier. What we really need in here is some more light. That's just about the way some disagreements go. Some people just disagree for the sake of being disagreeable. But I want you to consider what Paul says here in Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Here are two women. These are female personal names, Euodia and Syntyche. Two women who Paul says he's worked side by side with them. These are laborers for the cause of Christ. And for some reason, They've had a falling out. They're, they're butting heads about something. We don't know what it is, and to try to determine it would just be fruitless speculation. But this is a letter to a church. This is full of weighty matters, big, important topics. Why, in the middle of this letter, does Paul devote this much attention to some personal disagreement between two women? I mean, shouldn't he have tried to solve this a little more discreetly? After all, this is a letter that's been read now by literally millions of people over the last 2,000 years, and here's Paul just airing all of this dirty laundry between these two Christian sisters. I think at least part of it is that it's important to communicate that in the church, we don't handle problems the same way that the world does. We don't disagree in the same way that those out in the world do. We're able to find common ground. We're able to come together and to work together. And I want you to notice what Paul says here in terms of approaching that problem. Uh, it's helpful even to notice what he does do and what he doesn't do. For one thing, he doesn't take sides. He doesn't say, I know all about this, and Yodia's right, Syntyche's wrong. Syntyche, you need to straighten up. He doesn't throw his weight around and say, well, I'm the apostle, and both of you need to straighten up or else you're both out. He doesn't do either of those things. Instead, he encourages them to find common ground. He says, I plead with you to agree with each other in the Lord. I entreat you, he says, agree in the Lord. It reminds me what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. As much as is possible, so far as it lies within you, be at peace with everyone. Paul's trying to live that out here. He's trying to encourage that in them. Then, of course, there's something else that Paul does. He appoints 
a third party. He calls him here in verse number three, uh, true companion, loyal yoke fellow, your translation may say. We don't know who this fellow was, but evidently he was a peacemaker. And if you think back to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called sons of God. There is nothing that the devil would rather do than divide up the church because that utterly cuts our legs out from under us. That cripples our witness. It cripples our effectiveness out in the world. So it's critically important that we pledge to one another and we pledge to God that we're not ever going to allow ourselves to give in to division. We serve God together. We'll be at peace with one another. Then Paul talks about peace within, starting in verse number four. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I don't know how you felt when you came to church today, whether it was this morning or tonight. Maybe you're on top of the world. Maybe it felt like everything was going your way. And if so, that's awesome. I'm happy for you. But I think that more often than not, we don't come here that way. We're carrying some sort of burden or another, maybe more than one burden around with us. Are you carrying a heavy burden tonight? Maybe you're worried about something. Maybe you're dealing with illness in your family. Maybe it's your own illness or the illness of a loved one. I know that there are many here going through that. Maybe there's a a problem in your life. It's been there and you just can't solve it and it just won't go away. Maybe you're burdened with guilt over sins that you've committed and you just can't work past it. Maybe you're grieving. I know some, unfortunately, have experienced that recently and experienced it here again just today. Maybe you're concerned about finances. Maybe there's some goal that you want to accomplish and you just haven't been able to do it. Whatever it is, on and on and on, we could go listing these burdens. Whatever it may be, Paul speaks to all of them here. Paul's talking to all of us who are carrying burdens. And I think we should realize this isn't just the uh, naive idealism of someone who doesn't know what it means to be burdened. Paul's not someone who just has it all going his way all the time, and this is just pie-in-the-sky, Pollyanna-ish optimism. Paul's writing this letter from prison, He's facing the very real possibility of his imminent death. He talks about it in these letters. And yet Paul gives us this formula for developing peace within. He says there in verse number six, do not be anxious about anything but in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. In other words, don't worry about it. Let God handle it. Someone has said that worry is the sin that Christians most commonly deal with 
because we don't even try to hide it. We usually don't even think about it as a sin, even though it's spoken of that way repeatedly. Jesus tells us not to be anxious. Paul tells us here not to be anxious. Worry so common that we're not even ashamed of it. You know, we come here together and we sing songs like, All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem. Crown him Lord of all. We sing about him as King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet we go out of here and we forget that he's king and that he's Lord and that he's the one who's actually in charge of everything. We continue to carry around these burdens more and more and more and we just let them add up and pile up upon us. I think of what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 16. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Whatever the trouble is, if we're Christians, we're being empowered, we're being changed on the inside by the Spirit that he's given to us. Jesus talks about worry, anxiety in Matthew chapter 6, and this passage from the Sermon on the Mount is one that I know we we are all familiar with. But listen again, I'm going to read this at length. Matthew 6, beginning in verse 25. Therefore I tell you, Do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory wasn't arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Someone has said that worry is us assuming a responsibility that God never intended for us to have. He'll carry those burdens for us. He never intended for us to. Let's turn them over to him. Casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you, as Peter writes. Finally, back to Philippians 4, Paul mentions being at peace with God. Verse number 8. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul essentially gives us filters here. We can think of them that way. Eight filters. Whatever's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, 
excellent, worthy of praise. Everything we hear, everything we see, everything we do needs to pass through these filters. And he says, if it can't pass through these filters, throw it away. You don't need to have anything to do with it. It shouldn't be in your mind, and it shouldn't be in your heart. But if it does pass through those, well, then you can be at peace with God. That's what he says. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Do you remember the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples the first time that he saw them after his resurrection? They were meeting together in that upper room, and they were in hiding. They were afraid because, after all, their master had just been killed, and for all they knew, they were going to be next. So they were hiding out there behind that locked door, and Jesus came, and he appeared in the midst of them. Do you remember what he said? He didn't say, I told you so. (laughs) This was going to happen. You weren't ready for it. He didn't give them the speech, where were you when I needed you? No. He simply said, peace be with you. The one thing they lacked, the thing that they didn't have, the thing that they needed most, that's what he offered to them. And he still offers it to us today. The question you need to ask yourself tonight is, do you have that? Do you have that peace that he offers? Did you come to God's house today with it? Or are you still carrying around those burdens with you, whatever they may be? If you came here with them, are you going to leave here tonight with those burdens still with you? Or are you going to turn them over to God? If you're here this evening and you've never come to him, come to him now. He can lift them. But more than likely, you're here tonight, you already are a Christian. Are you trying to do it alone? You can be at peace with God. And if you need to make changes tonight to be in that state with him, it's his invitation while we stand and while we sing. 